to get things going. You have a great book, man, and I, I can't wait to show it to the Code Keepers. Yes, sir. I my good brother. Good stuff. So, Code Keepers, as you can see, community conscious policing. We have the good brother, Brandon. You know, they, they say, let's go, Brandon. They're talking about something else. We're going to we're gonna repurpose that. When we say, let's go, Brandon, we're talking about him. <laughs> we talk about, let's go, Brandon. We're talking about this brother, right? And so, we're going to deal with uh, policing. We're going to deal with Comet. We're going to deal with how we handle things and how you heal from trauma. And I know what you're saying, Code Keepers. You're like, yo, Seiko. How does this empower us? Well, stay tuned. All right. Welcome to Get On Code, the Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge of self. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to. And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party, the lion was the Republicans. But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason, don't seem to be able to transfer it. You had a great experience. Fine. That means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an expression becomes depression. Yes, sir. Code Keepers, we're on the line with the good brother Brandon Lee, co-founder of Training for Transformation. And let's start off, Brandon, man. Like I said, whenever you hear Let's Go Brandon, from now on, we're talking about this brother right here, right? Let's Go Brandon. Tell us about Training for Transformation, man. First of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on your platform. I have to begin in Oakland. Uh, we'll get into some stories that I guess got me into the work that I'm doing now as far as uh, training, law enforcement, and police accountability. But Training for Transformation as a business began around 2014. Uh, at this time, Michael Brown, uh, Ferguson, community uprisings were happening you know, nationwide. And I was an educator. Uh, I had students that were uh, being impacted and uh, they didn't have anywhere to turn to. And unfortunately, a lot of them were flunking out of school. There were hate crimes happening on campus. There were all of these videos surfacing. Uh, for anybody from my generation, I grew up in, in the 80s in, uh, in uh, uh, Oakland. We referred to it as the crack era growing up, but you know, reminiscing about it and those who survived it, you know, now it's affectionately, you know, turned the dope era and different. But coming through it, man, it was, it was just drastic. And so for anybody from that generation or, or prior, we've seen the cycles of violence and how these things have typically gone. And so really to advocate for my students, we uh, didn't even start the business. You know, my plan was to be the president of a community college one day, but um, I knew that something had to happen. And I reached out to our local law enforcement in town um, and we began a conversation uh, to their statistical data. They were not, uh, racially profiling in their precinct or department. But unfortunately, I had a stack of surveys from students who felt otherwise and had qualitative data. The only thing that uh, was not contained, and that's where the training came in, was my students did not specify which police department had profiled them, and there's several in any district. So that allowed a conversation around training to come out 
the law enforcement, uh, 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 the law enforcement department, Corvallis Police Department, they did step up uh, and receive, you know, what we had to offer. But had I known or had their names in that that qualitative data, more than likely, uh, we would have just had a legal redress conversation, went right in straight to accountability. So we got our start around Oregon State University in Oregon. Wow. Wow. I, I bet when you were having those conversations, the police departments were standing on the square that the community was the problem, that policing was not the problem. Would you agree? Yeah, there's a few outdated, um, I'm thinking of the word mean, but out, outdated themes that you would hear tossed around. And certainly they were prevalent when, when uh, I began. So, for example, you know, there's only a few bad apples. You know, you can't can't convict the entire uh, law enforcement profession or everybody in a department. But from an indigenous perspective, you know, one rotten apple can spoil a bunch. So, you know, whatever. Uh, so, yes, there was a lot of pushback on community being involved in terms of training and community oversight. Uh, there was kind of a general understanding that, uh, you know, a community, uh, because they were not law enforcement, right, uh, didn't really have much to offer when it came to training and accountability. And of course, me going through what I went through coming out of Oakland and other experiences around the country, um, I felt differently. <laughs> and what is, I'm still befuddled that we have so many. FOBs, you know, uh, Fraternal Order of Police and Brotherhood of Police who push that narrative. Hey, hey, we're the professionals. We know what you're doing. We're not the problem. You're the problem. And if there's a few of us that are our problems, uh, allow us to handle it. And even though we're not going to handle it, you should be okay with it because you're not us and we're the authority. And, and that's... And I think that's the crux of the argument. That's the crux of, you know, what you're doing with Training for Transformation. Um, and we're going to jump right into some of the questions that I have because okay. I think that we have some of the most highly trained professionals in law enforcement. I mean, they have military-level weapons and weaponry. They have military training. They have some of the best technology for surveillance. So... I personally don't think, and hopefully you can you know prove me wrong. I personally don't think that training is the issue because they're some of the most highly trained individuals we have in America. So I guess my question is, will training end the problems that we've had with police violence? In short, no. In short, no. Training alone will not change a culture of any field. However, you know, I got this, I have to give honor and praise to the Coalition of Police Accountability um, and their director, uh, Rashida Grenache, you know, having a conversation with mentors and elders of grassroots led organizations who have built on uh, generations of those who come before me, including my own father, uh, who kind of paved the way in this work. And training alone will not change the culture. However, training with the policies that are guided up and uplifted by people with lived experience who have been historically most impacted by law enforcement violence and racial inequities 
if we are at the design table and able to include and integrate the policies that we want to see in our neighborhoods and communities, then the training and the policy, now you may have a foundation to build what we would consider community oversight of law enforcement or even community-led law enforcement training. But without policies, without investigating how budgets are allocated, without investigating hiring practices, uh, without looking at basically every uh, every place where community and law enforcement connect and apply what we would refer to as a racial equity lens, meaning understand the power dynamics historically between law, law enforcement and most importantly, black indigenous and people of color. Without that comprehensive approach, no, training alone will not solve. And so what we, um, I'll just tell you a brief anecdote to kind of illustrate this. I was sitting on a statewide uh, committee and it was put together with all the higher ups. And I'm just a community member, a, a new father at the time, just trying to, to be of support in the place where I live. And I'm sitting around the room and this committee will be developing the policies of how people like me will be policed. And around the room are academic researchers, there are police leaders, there are local politicians, you know, some statewide politicians. But there wasn't anybody that I would consider to be from the community who would be impacted by the policies and things that we were talking about. I have to give honor to a gentleman by the name of Matthew Carr. We've never met, but he was an attorney or is an attorney that graduated from uh, uh, Vermont Law School. He somehow got a word of what we were doing and he coined the phrase police community integrated training and education. And we refer to it as PSIGHT. And so he highlighted training for transformation as a model example of what training could look like when power dynamics were switched, when it is community members of lived experience who design the curriculum of the training, when law enforcement come into a setting in plain clothes, no guns, and sit next to the people that they serve. The shift in power dynamics is what he uplifted. And uh, from that, uh, from from uh, once I found that out, I'm sitting in this room back to the story and I'm looking at everyone in here and I've got my master's degree in teaching, my undergraduate degree in public policy and Spanish, not to mention what I've already done with NAACP and other volunteer organizations. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Policing? Yeah, I am not a law enforcement. I, I'm not police. I'm not military. So much respect for those who put on a uniform and go and serve the community. Much respect if you're doing a good job. But when it came to community integrated training and education. Yeah, it hit me like a ton of bricks. There's nobody in this room more qualified than me in my firm when it comes to that. And so in the beginning, there was, uh, I wanna honor that there were leadership and law enforcement leaders who were, you know, looking to get beyond scenario-based training. They wanted to get beyond the statistics. And typically these were the agencies with the highest level of accreditation and wanted to kind of push, push uh, beyond what was kind of the normal status quo and embraced what we had to offer. So I have to uplift that because if there weren't those from across the aisle to kind of uh, accept our olive branch, uh, this probably wouldn't have happened in the way that we did. Uh, so that's a little anecdote about how um, we kind of had to break down some barriers when it came to training in law enforcement. Uh, but I'm sure you'll start to see more and more of this style of approach. Uh, Cause quite frankly, there just are not any others on the table, which you have community policing, 
abolishment and <laughs> like what other op options are there? Yeah, I, I've had a chance to speak to a couple of the people involved in the abolitionist approach. And uh, hey, I wanted to throw the gold bricks up there real quick. 1911 was a good year. It was truly a good year. And uh, we shared 1911 together. Now, uh, as a member of Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity, you guys started 1911 with your founding. And uh, as a member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, we ended it. So uh, I, I jokingly say you started the fight, we ended the fight. But the fight was for improvement. It wasn't against each other. Uh, Absolutely not. And even, even you know, uh, healthy competition has led to this day. And so any one of us who stand together in brotherhood and solidarity, uh, you know, we talk about people like Colin Kaepernick, you know, and, you know, the sacrifice, at least professionally, that he made to stand on the issue regarding police brutality. You know, there's a blueprint, you know, that was handed down to us by brothers who were in, you know, the worst of circumstances, you know, what we were going through was just normal, not having access to their own, you know, at least in our situation, right, not having access to uh, uh, campus uh, activities or support, you know, uh, having to live far away from campus, not having housing, all of these different things that they had to overcome. Uh, so Colin Kaepernick, being a member of my fraternity brother, Kappa Alpha Psi, you know, I completely understand the blueprint that uh, I won't speak for you, my good brother, but I think all of us share this commitment and this obligation, you know, that's bigger than us, passed down to us. And all I want to do and seek to do is be in alignment with those that came before us. So I do appreciate the shout out. Much love and respect to my 1911 brothers of Omega Sapphire. And of course, uh, any noobs that might be uh, in the building. Salute that. Salute that. One of the issues that I find when we're dealing with, you know, policing is... the challenge that policing the the effects and challenges that policing has left in our community you know i i meet with police officers you know i ran for the school board i do a lot of community work i'm really involved with politics and they're they're always hey we want to meet with the community we want the community to meet with us we want to do and i'm like nah i mean all the basketball games all the cookouts all the turkey giveaways in the world isn't really addressing some of the concerns. And I think one of the biggest concerns is when when uh, Joe Turner hurts another citizen, Joe Turner gets arrested and goes to jail. When Officer Friendly hurts another citizen, nothing happens. Or things try to get covered up. And so when people are saying that you guys hate police, we don't hate individual polices, I don't believe. I think we really see that there's an inequity that needs to be addressed that the government seems to sanction. But one of the prevailing problems is because we feel this angst, because we feel this hurt, because we've had some abuses that have not been addressed, there's a lot of healing that needs to happen, you know. And so, you know, we're going to ask how does one survive a police stop, but how does one... How does a community heal mm. from police brutality? Mm. And I, I think you have the answer to that. So how do we heal from police brutality? Absolutely. Fantastic question. And it's one that we work to address in our book. First, I want to kind of provide a little bit of uh, not education as far as not wanting to insult anyone's intelligence, but just so that we have some shared language and understanding and framework for the conversation. 
So my business partner, Hoon Tang, she's also my wife, right? Middle of my kids. Um, she was a refugee. She is a refugee from Cambodia. Ethnically, she is Chinese, um, speaks the oldest dialect in China. So when we speak, talk about native indigenous, but they were the merchant class in Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge genocide. And her family were forced to flee for their lives. And after a long journey, arrived in California when she was seven or eight and was raised from there. We met at the School for International Training. And the School for International Training is based on experiential learning. I My major was uh, Master, of, uh, Master of Arts in Teaching English to Speakers of Other Languages, International Education. Hoon's uh, focus was conflict transformation, peace building. And in that, her major, she was able to go back to Cambodia, back and reclaim her Khmer language and study the peace building process. And in her thesis, the art and, reconcil uh, art and reconciliation as it relates to multi-generational trauma. So those who were the, the descendants of the ones uh, who operated as the oppressor in that situation. The descendants still live there. The victims of those who were slaughtered years later, they still live there. So the descendants of the oppressor and the descendants of the victims are still in the same place, but yet how do they find a way to uh, work through their trauma and rebuild a shared vision of community? So I have to honor you know, this story because it's not my own, but the conflict transformation, what we gleaned were some international resources. So for example, uh, Johan Golton, uh, world-renowned peace builder, he has a simple triangle that'll help frame this conversation. And so he speaks about direct violence. That's what you and I see on camera way too often. George Floyd's, we know the names, we see the examples. Uh, this is where a lot of law enforcement will promote community policing. You know, I'll get out my car, go meet the neighbors of the community, and then we'll build bridges, you know, one at a time. Then you have structural violence. These are the policies and examples. So I'm in Oregon now. Oregon is the only state that I'm aware of that uh, introduced state-based discrimination into its constitution. So the Oregon exclusion laws. There's a reason why there's not many Black people here in the state. And the first exclusion law was to lash any Negro, and I'm paraphrasing, but to lash any Negro uh, found in this uh, territory until they quit, right? Until they left. So this, this is an example of the structural violence, all of the segregation and policies that went into play after slavery to keep certain people down and the rest up. So a lot of times we'll have conversations and I'm not here to, there's a spectrum when it comes to this work. And I've sat in just about every seat, you know, uh, uh, different departments have different solutions. Uh, so whether you're coming from abolishment or police reform or, you know, refund, there's a spectrum that needs to, you know, that I, that I have to honor. Where we operate, and a lot of times these conversations happen only on the structural level, but rarely do I hear conversations on the cultural, the level of cultural violence. It's the cultural violence. That's where the patriarchy, the colonized, the colonialism, that's where we are conditioned to basically become normalized. These, these um, situations that we see on TV with people getting, with black people getting killed and murdered by law enforcement, they become normalized. 
So if we don't get into patriarchy, you know, toxic masculinity, if we don't get into um, the colonized and slavery and the, uh, the wiping out of native peoples, if we're not scratching on the surface of that level, then we're not making any adjustments as far as the culture. So that's why it's not, uh, especially depending on where, you, where you've been impacted, it's not wise to just go and sit down with law enforcement out the gate without some type of someone to craft and facilitate that space and prepare participants for what that encounter could look like. Um, one thing that's most important that I would like to tease out and then uh, lead this to your question as far as healing from police brutality, trauma. When police officers who, and I'll be clear, I am not equating what police officers go through with the historical trauma of people who are descendants of slavery, mass violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not assuming that they're the same, they're not. And it needs to be distinguished. But with that being said, if you look at any first responder and the rate at which they're getting called out, the pressures that are placed upon them and the elasticity that's needed not just for law enforcement, teachers, nurses, anyone in leadership has to be so you know, elastic to fit the needs of everybody who's, who needs their attention. If there's not a place for healing, if there's not a place to process these constant trauma-related issues, then I've got an officer who's probably dealing with a lot of trauma, probably higher rates at home of domestic violence, you know, they're dealing with higher rates of their own health issues, you name it. And then I've got someone like myself. My dad died at uh, 37, a hypertension and kidney failure. His brother did at 40 of the same. Their father, my grandfather died at 53 of the same, hypertension and kidney failure. You think racism didn't have nothing to do with that, right? So now there's a police stop. And now I got this big ball of trauma walking up to my window. I'm already, in my mind, elevated, not just because of what I've endured, but for everyone who's come before me. That blood still flows to my veins. And yeah, that trauma does. If there's not someone like a community conscious policing to be able to provide some type of context to that engagement, very rarely, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure more often than not, things happen uh, where everyone leaves safely, but from an indigenous perspective, and I'll end on this point, we have to understand that from an indigenous lens, words can cause just as much of an impact as a bullet. We just don't stick around to see how those words manifest in our bodies. But it's evident when you look at the disparaging, the, dis the disparities and the racism in public health, it's obvious. And so when I do my trainings, we make it very clear that micro people, what people call microaggressions are these little nicks that happen to us as people of color every day. They actually lead to um, uh, an earlier mortality rate. It's taking life away from us. And the same thing with these officers. If they're not provided a, a safe to, a place to process and heal from what they're going through and seeing, they're also... so. It just dawned on me in the research that at some point, and you got to understand, I'm able to do this work because I found resolution and I found accountability out of some situations that happened to me that most do not. 
But that allowed me to be able to move forward. And as I looked at the research, I was like, dang, yes, we as black people and uh, BIPOC people are getting the short end of the stick, no doubt. But there's a connection between our mortality rates. So what if me living longer and more prosperous was connected to these police officers doing the same? And what if there's an understanding that we were interconnected? And that brings us to this uh, pillar of ours, which is inter, uh, interbeing. So that's how like an indigenous lens, we bring it into the work that we're doing in modern times. And it helps to contextualize our work in a way that is more um, natural for us. It is a paradigm shift. All right. Okay. Interesting. I like the fact that you keep bringing up the term indigenous. So we're going to have to dive into that a little as well. Uh, I did ask earlier, well, I teased the question earlier, so let's go to class. Teach us, how does one survive a police stop? So I'm coming with my angst, my generational trauma. You know, they're coming with their situational trauma, dealing with the trauma that they've had because of their job and the things that are happening in their home. You're right, police do have higher levels of suicide, of domestic violence, all the ills of the world you can find, well, I don't wanna say that, because all means all. A lot of the ills in the world you can find higher rates with our police officers. Um, I know how a police officer, there was a, a black police officer in Columbus, Ohio, that taught us how to survive a police stop. Mm -hmm because he knew what his compadres in Columbus, Ohio were doing. Columbus, Ohio still has a, a really, I don't want to call it evil. <laughs> that might be going a bridge too far. A step, it might be a step too far. But they have some insidious stuff in their police department that's been longstanding for decades. Uh, but so this brother sat, sat us down at one of the African Senate schools I attended and taught us how to survive a police stop. And I use those skills to today, um, how do you teach that we can survive police stops? What a wonderful experience it sounds like. What I just want to uplift is, you know, it sounds like, as you, as you said, this took place at an African-centered school. So I just want to uplift the context in which you learned this information. So for me, it's not so much about the teaching someone about surviving a police stop, but rather the context, right? And that paradigm shift, which means centering us who have been historically most impacted by law enforcement violence. Coming from that understanding is way different than coming from a law enforcement centered perspective that wants you to know what they want you to know. So there's a few things uh, that we offer. The first is that we can, uh, I just make it clear every time that I am not an attorney. So I'm not offering legal advice and would offer that, uh, you know, would refer you to a, a, a service like Legal Shield uh, or an attorney to get your legal questions answered. But we do teach what we would call uh, in East Oakland, at least when I, in my era, we refer to it as game. Lessons learned only through experience. And so similar to what you shared, you know, my big cousins, when I was writing my book, my aunt, who I, my dad died when I was nine, but we're still like this. And my, when I wrote my book, my aunt said, boy, your daddy had us in his living room organizing us back in the 70s when he would work as assistant to the mayor to get the police type back then. And I realized that back to an indigenous lens that I'm merely stepping into 
the work of my bloodline, bringing people together who may not otherwise come together. One of the things that, uh, so now that we have a context and frame, right? I, you can see a lot of things with the same title, but if it's not coming with that frame, then you're probably gonna get something different. The second understanding is, is that our rights in this country are for us to learn and exercise, meaning to trust that a law enforcement officer is gonna know your rights as a citizen or as a resident, and then is going to adhere to those without you having to invoke them is a fallacy, you know, that's an illusion. So these are like steps to take before we even get to like, what are the actual things I need to know and quotes I need to say. Um, once we kind of work through there, there are simple exercises. Uh, uh, S, I did not coin this, uh, but one that is proven to be useful is SBNRR. It stands for stop, breathe, notice what's coming up in my body. What is it? Where is it? Where is it coming up? Where am I getting tight? Notice. Reflect, right? That reflection is on what I'm noticing and then respond. So I took time to kind of like walk you through the process, but as you practice and role play, this process will happen like this. So when I get pulled over, I see those lights or I see an officer, maybe I'm not even getting pulled, I see a police officer, right? And I, I feel it, I feel it, right? Stop, Brandon, stop, B, stop. <laughs> Breathe, <laughs> literally breathe. Sometimes that's a step that I have to say, breathe, right? Notice, and what am I noticing is what I'm feeling based on what's happening to me right now, or am I feeling me, my father, my uncles, my grandfathers and all of that. And I need to be, kind of be able to work through that. Before I had an understanding of a trauma, man, I got pulled over, boom, I'm at you. I'm, I'm popping off out the gate. You know, in Oakland, they was knocking us down anyway. I mean, so you might as well go out standing on your 10 toes. I mean, that's how we was trained to get out. But again, finding accountability, being able to work through my own trauma, going through initiations to reconquer my own self. SBNRR is probably the first stop so that by the time I'm pulled over or I'm with that officer, I'm coming from a frame that's completely different. And really, I'm taking the responsibility to de-escalate this situation, quite honestly. So that's an example that I would offer. Of course, we go through, uh, you know, specific verbiage that you should know regarding your own rights. Um, I, uh, and you need to check this with your local state, counties, cities, make sure that it translates. But from my understanding, um, you know, I, uh, with all due respect, I refuse to answer any questions without my attorney present. With all due respect, I refuse to answer any questions without my attorney present. And that's just the course, you know, so that there are certain things that you can do to just establish that you have an idea of what's going on. You're exercising your rights. And if they're violated, you just repeat these things for the redress later on. The final thing that I'll leave you with is that I don't go out uh, unprepared. So uh, I'm not here to promote any type of service, but there are, uh, I'll just tell you, you know, I keep legal shields. Uh, it does not, Legal Shield isn't affordable for some people, attorney service that has 24 hour access to attorneys, emergency access to an attorney. Um, so I've actually been pulled over before and had my, my attorney on the phone, on speakerphone before the officer even got to my window. 
So there's things that you can do, even as a peace builder. I don't carry guns. I don't, you know, there are certain values that I adhere to. But um, as coming again from a native perspective, being prepared for the invaders has always been something that we have had to, um, you know, uh, prepare for. And uh, so the legal shield, you know, uh, knowing which laws apply to me, rehearsing, role playing them so that under pressure, I'm ready to, you know, spit them. And then most importantly, breathe, slow down, take a breath. And just as we're talking about this ancestral trauma, call on your ancestors who also have already been through these circumstances, found ways to thrive under these pressures, right? And, you know, you come from a place like that, most likely, you know, it, uh, it transcends any country, nationality, or race. However, if for some reason you are your rights are still violated, it will set you up for a proper redress, um, you know, if you survive. And that's just real talk. Wow. Yeah, that, that was really real talk. That was real, real talk. <laughs> I appreciate that, brother. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. The first thing you dealt with is spirit. You said breathe. And, uh, you know, I won't go into the metaphysics of that. I think you can go a lot deeper than I can. <laughs> um, being involved with the MTAM School of Kemetic Philosophy and Spirituality. All right. You know, do the knowledge, man. Tell me about this, brother. Tell me about this. I'll remove my hat for this conversation. Um, I have to give honor and praise to uh, Prophet Neb Naba, Lamusa Muadinabig. He was uh, recognized as a high priest of the Dogon of West Africa. For those who may not be aware, uh, the ethnic group of the Dogon, uh, they tended to the spiritual matters of Pharaoh and ancient Egypt. We refer to uh, Egypt as Hejbata, and we refer to the land of Africa as Merita, the beloved land. He um, uh, rose as a young high priest, meaning he went through his initiations the Dogon are credited for astronomy and, I mean, pretty much any science you can think of. It was important, number one, to begin with this because what was very important about uh, at the time when he was living, Master Naba, was that he also was trained in Western, Western uh, colleges. He spoke English. And so he got the permission of the elders and the priests and said, and, and I'm paraphrasing my understanding, but basically, without our knowledge and teachings of self and how we relate to the cosmos, we got some brothers and sisters in the West who are lost and who want to re-know and reconquer themselves. And he gained permission to be able to open initiation up to include people like myself in the United States who wanted to work to reclaim myself but didn't have access to these temples. So he started the Earth Center, the first in Chicago of 19, in 1996. And what was most important, I can't say most important, so many things are important. But one of the things that he brought out, and it's the first page of my book, and it's the first page for a reason, is the divine, uh, it's the uh, code of human behavior. The first code of human behavior that I'm aware of. So when we're speaking on the topic of law and order, it was very important for me to make it known to those that I work with, that the concept of law and order was taught to humanity by very dark-skinned, 
black people in Africa. So the concept that people of color are don't have some connection or understanding of law and order, and therefore we are like more apt to crime and you know at higher rates in prison is ludicrous <laughs> because you know we are the descendants of those who introduce law and order to the world. So that's the context that we wanted to begin with. And had uh, Master Naba not brought this knowledge out of the initiation camps of the Bush to the United States, then we really would have no um, hope in terms of reclaiming and reconquering ourselves. So Kim philosophy and spirituality is uh, stems from the Dogon. And to just boil it down to one theme, we work in community conscious policing to apply life-preserving principles. In indigenous communities, I doubt you'll find a prison or a jail or a concept of such. But how do we apply life-preserving principles in these modern day times? And that's the connection of why we had to do it through a Kim philosophy and spiritual lens. All right, hey man, Count, uh, code keepers, we're getting deep. <laughs> we're getting deep. I'm holding the book. It's a great read. I'm telling you, it's, you know, this will take you maybe about four days, you know, about four days. The good brother, Brandon Lee, and he wrote conscious, I'm sorry, community conscious policing, community conscious policing, not conscious community policing, because we do need to police the conscious community. <laughs> yeah. uh, I shaded that, but this is about uh, dealing with the boys in blue. Uh, so, um, Community conscious policing, and you can pick up his book. I, I got it from Amazon. You can get it from Amazon or your local melanated bookstore. You know, uh, I, I favor in the Hampton Roads area positive vibes African literature, uh, but there are some other great ones in DC and Oakland. I know some great ones as well. So you know, pick it up from your melanated bookstore. And I, I kind of want to go down the comedic rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, I'm a hotep at heart, man. I'm a hotep at heart. Um, I, I say that. Um, I said earlier that you're involved with the Prince Hall Masons, the Prince Hall Shriners, Scottish Rites Masonry, and Kappa Alpha Psi, and this mystery school you just described about. Uh, how does it all fit together? And, you know, I just had a conversation earlier with uh, the good brother, the Chakra Doctor, and he was like, yo, you in a fraternity, man. Are you, are you in... Are you involved in evil? You know, <laughs> y'all doing evil. Y'all trying to rule the world. Y'all the boule. And I was like, uh, that ain't us. <laughs> that might be them, but that ain't us. In other words, our right. organizations, our divine nine organizations are not involved with some of the rituals and activities that Skull and Bones and Trilateral Commission and some of those other organizations are involved in. Um, so, Tell us a little bit, you know, very quickly, you know, Prince Hall Masons, Prince Hall Shriners. I hadn't heard that one before. Scottish Rites Masonry familiar with. Of course, you know, the salute to the good brothers of Kappa Alpha Psi. And you also just discussed your mystery school. So hit us up on, uh, you know, do the knowledge on Princess Hall Masons and <laughs> Princess Hall Shriners Absolutely. as it relates to this. Absolutely. So kind of the bullet point list, I had the honor and privilege to uh I, I think nowadays they say initiate. I pledged, you know, I pledged cap off aside my freshman year uh, that, uh, you know, it was elder brothers who saw how I took to it, right? And how I upheld the shield or did my best to uphold the shield and kind of pulled my coattails. 
and just say, you know, listen, the, the journey isn't over. The wide behold is deep if for those who want to seek, you know, honest seekers. And after a few years, um, you know, I lost my father at nine. Like I said, spiritually remained, you know, really tight. But I was in, and I was um, motivated to discover more. So that led me, uh, you know, I attended at Baylor University, Zy Sigma chapter, executive style noobs as far as Kappa. But Texas is where my grandparents are from. My grandfather graduated from Prairie View A&M University, HBCU. Um, so I discovered Prince Hall Freemasonry. When I discovered Prince Hall Freemasonry, it was like a whole veil had been lifted off. And I had to go look at my own fraternity during different light. You know, one thing that shares a lot of our uh, divine nine as far as fraternities and sororities is that many of our founders were indeed a part of Prince Hall Freemasonry for the men and the Order of Eastern Stars for the women. Um, so when I discovered this brother by the name of Prince Hall, if you're not uh, aware of him, definitely go do your own research. Uh, but I was uh, elected as the first grand historian of Prince Hall in my area of Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. But I was raised a Prince Hall Mason in Texas. And so I say uh, Oakland raised, Texas made. Uh, so Prince Hall was regarded or is regarded as a black founding father of this country, of the United States of America. Uh, he was posthumously recognized as such by the Cambridge City Council. He has a monument near Harvard University, giving honor to him as an American revolutionary patriot who fought in the American Revolution, uh, who, I mean, he did everything from opening the first, I can't say the first, but probably the first school, public school for black children that started in his home and then moved to the Masonic Lodge. So a lot of times publicly, who takes the credit, and rightfully so, is the church or even the mosque. But a lot of times there were Prince Hall Freemasons who consisted of the same members who met in the same buildings, and they were the pillars of our neighborhoods and communities. Um, and so you can find out a lot more about Prince Hall Freemasonry. I could go on for, for days, but without the knowledge of Prince Hall, all divine nine, as far as I'm concerned, in one way, shape, or form, are descendants, meaning that Prince Hall Freemasonry began in, let's see, some give it credit for 1775. More recent research, shout out to John Hairston, says 1778. But regardless, got uh, international, internationally established 1784, and that is, you know, uh, understood. So from 1784 to, say, say Cap Alpha Psi in 1911, a lot happened. And so when I discovered Prince Hall Freemasonry, and uh, this brother named Prince Hall, who had done all this in Boston, writing letters. I mean, the brother was just doing things that, so he definitely was an inspiration and let me know and confirmed, you know, based on what I saw in my grandparents, you know, the Native Americans in my family, that no, the work that we were doing was, um, uh, was a continuation of people who had come before us, you know, a shout out to, of course, uh, the Black Panther, the original Black Panther Party of Self-Defense in Oakland and similar movements for other genres, uh, for other communities. But without Prince Hall, just like without uh, Master Naba, Prophet Naba, <laughs> there would be no road to follow, you know, in our time of need right now. And without understanding and knowing who they are, we very rare, we also can be contributing to causing harm simply by not even understanding the contributions of people like Prophet Naba and Prince Hall. I say that. Um, I do a presentation, or I used to do a presentation. I haven't done it in decades. Um, 
As a matter of fact, you can find that presentation on YouTube, The African Origins of Fraternities and Sororities. I did this back at Norfolk State University back in 1997. I used to do this presentation for my uh, for the bros. Uh, this particular presentation that I videotaped here was done for the uh, good brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha. But yeah, we get into the roots of our Divine Nine organizations and how you know they're connected with uh, masonry and with Prince Hall and things of that nature. So I'm glad that you're able to highlight that. And what's interesting is not all, not, not you know, when we talk about, you know, solving the problems of police, we don't talk about Prince Hall and, and Kemet, but you do. You In your book, in the first pages, you talk about, <laughs> you talk about the motherland, the traditional motherland, Kemet, and, it, it it really blew my mind that to find the information that we studied in our African-centered schools of thought from wherever they came from, um, that you brought that into addressing problems that we're having with the judicial system. And that just kind of blows my mind, you know. So I want to ask this question as kind of our last question. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking with the good brother, Brandon, so... Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> so whenever see, every time you see Let's Go, Brandon, we're, we're talking about this brother. We're talking about him, all right? <laughs> but Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, you know, what, what should we be doing about these types of situations? What can be done about these types of situations? First... Uh, giving honor and praise to the ancestors, no matter their age, anyone who passes and transitions before we are considered to be the ancestors. So much, um, you know, just want to send out condolences and prayers, you know, to those families who continue, you know, to deal with the loss of loved ones. And, but with that being said, um, I have to honor that there's a spectrum, you know, uh, depending on your law enforcement, law enforcement has different levels of accreditation. Law enforcement tracks different information on their officers. Some track more than what's required. Some track the bare minimum. So there's no one size fits all. You know, I'm someone that's about that's about the process. Community conscious policing is a process. So whether you're about abolishment or refunding or police reform, regardless of the conversation, if it's not done with the, without the people who are most impacted by law enforcement violence. And you know, white supremacy culture, racial inequities at the design table, then you will be contributing to the problem. Period. So there are cases, you know, in Oakland. I deal with Oakland. You know, when, <laughs> when we were, when, man, there was a time when abolishment, for sure. Like, uh, there's a time to have that conversation, you know. And I want to just take that. That's outside of law enforcement. I'm about to take my son out of school and, and train him myself next spring semester this is real talk if you're not upholding the standard you will become obsolete and these are based on indigenous laws and universal laws and nature-based principles right that i know you understand so i have to lead with that because if certain companies law enforcement departments etc do not do what's necessary to make this paradigm shift in the 20, 21st century then they will become obsolete one way or another. Uh, now, on the 
what I will say about Oakland is that we had a strong grassroots uh, um, uh, community that we all have our respective things, but when it came to police brutality, we were able to unite into a coalition. You know, that's huge. We also stood on the shoulders and the work of those had, who had come before us, right? We weren't recreating something new. You know, if you remember back in Oakland, when you talk about the Panthers, it wasn't just a militancy. You had to go learn some Swahili. You had to go change your name and identify under a different consciousness. I mean, there was some education involved. So those are the things that I would consider to be a, a we are a, a public health response model to ending unnecessary law enforcement violence. So that means calling on the strengths of the community to solve our own problems so that if there is crime, that they can go focus on that. But the infrastructure needs to be um, uh, 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 provided for a community to be able to serve its own solution. So I'll give you a quick antidote and then I'll end with this. In 1994, I was walking through a parking lot, West Oakland, going to see some family. And six cars, police cars came in back, back, back to back, boom, 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 boom. Two in each car, jump out guns pool. Get on the ground. Get on the ground. Whoa. I'm 14. I go to private school. I don't know anything about this life, man. I hit the pavement. I can still taste the dust and all of that stuff. To make a long story short, because that idea took a couple of hours. It was my cousins, my family who got word. This before social media and all that cell phones got word of what was happening. I hadn't arrived to my destination. And so they found me and they got to me and they didn't break any laws, but they they did what they had to do to get me free without being physically harmed. And that's when I understood that while law enforcement has the force, all the things that you named, the power has, is, and always will remain with the people if we choose to exercise it. And so that memory is what stuck into my mind so to answer your question, what should be done? There's a lot of changes that could be done to police. But coming from uh, a Kim perspective, we are builders, uh, which means I, I don't destroy. I don't dismantle. I don't take away. I, I'm into building. And in Oakland, when, the, uh, uh, when this happened to me, fast forward 15 years, still working on the same issue, going through my initiations, working on myself, but I connected with the Coalition of Police Accountability led by Rashida Granaz and a whole lot of other folks. And we work to defund, meaning take the 1.4 million plus budget from Internal Affairs of Oakland and use it to fund our community oversight of law enforcement board. And that community oversight of law enforcement board, thanks to measure LL in what, 2016, it became strengthened and it became a lot more teeth to bring accountability. And now, in my opinion, it's one of the strongest in the nation. So it took decades, right? But it is, transformation is possible. Healing is necessary. And this is kind of the mud that community conscious policing was birthed out of. So solutions may vary, but what I would say is I will put all of my energy and focus on empowering the community to step up, educate, and uh, uh, bind, bond together to see what vision, what shared vision of community that they want to see and make those demands accordingly. And lastly, don't sacrifice our value system in order to do it. 
Hey, we're learning and earning and building with the good brother, Brandon. <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. Good brother, Brandon Lee, author of Community Conscious Policing, a guide for people's justice and law enforcement solutions. So if we're looking for the solution, it's already written. <laughs> it's already written. Hey, brother, how does this empower us? Last question. Fantastic question. I'm so glad that you asked. Um, this empowers us, again, just to recap a little bit of our conversation. Law and order, we are the descendants of those who taught humanity. Um, number two, I describe in my book with the importance of initiation. So one thing I think that is uh, necessary is that we invest in the institutions that got us here, that preserved us to be here. So I don't claim my organizations to be perfect and that there's nothing wrong with them. That's not what I'm professing. But the reason why I participated in NAACP, Cap Alpha Psi, Prince Hall Freemasonry, and now paying homage to reconquer myself through the initiatic process with the Earth Center. These are, uh, it's my way of paying homage to those who sacrificed so much for me to even be here to do this work. And without going through these uh, as we discussed, my good brother, going, th going through these initiatic camps that were established by us, for us, we're simply lost in time and space. Uh, so that's how I would say it empowers us. The policing, you'll get 33 recommendations at the end that are very applicable. You'll get case studies of real racial profiling incidents that have occurred to me, how we redress them ideas on how to uh, you need to heal from them. There are healing exercises in them. Shout out to Resmo Manakum, uh, author of My Grandmother's Hands that inspired us to include actual healing exercises, Kim healing exercise in the book. But ultimately, um, this empowers us to help us revisit and reconquer and remind us of who we truly are. And if we stand in that ancestral spirit, everything around us has no choice but to yield. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. Ashay, <laughs> Ashay. Um, the Unitarian Church, you're part of the Unitarian Church? I am, I am, I am. Quick quick uh, bit on that. Uh, I was raised uh, Church of Christ, so I wanna honor uh, where I came from. My father was Baptist, graduated from Houston Baptist University. Uh, so, you know, no denomination beef. But as far as my value system today, having gone through, you know, some aspects of Tetnahan, uh, uh, Buddhism, he's the one who introduced mindfulness to the West and a lot of my other uh, uh, just initiations and worldwide travels. The Unitarian Church more fit my family values of where we are today. And, and not only that, they embraced me, my family and community conscious policing to where we were able to lead a police accountability team. Uh, there. So, yeah, have to recognize uh, First Unitarian Church of Portland and, uh, you know, the, the broader uh, uni uh, universalists for their support of our mission. I say that. I say that. I spend a lot of time with one of the um, universalist churches, Unitarian mm -hmm. churches, I think. Um, right. I get too mixed up because they're solely closely aligned. Right, right, right. Um, I helped them with one of their annual Kwanzaa celebrations. Uh, little known fact is that the uh, Universal Unitarians, or Universal Universalists, I, I mix it up. I do the same, no disrespect. Yeah. Right, right, right. They gave a grant to uh, um, Milana Karinga and the US organization, 
and that grant helped fund the research that helped them to formulate Kwanzaa the celebration. So it's kind of interesting that uh, the church that you're associated with, uh, the church you're associated with helped fund the early stages of the Kwanzaa celebration. So that's a great say to that. Hey, um, Code Keepers, I want you to check out the book, Conscious Community. I keep saying it because yep. <laughs> the conscious community does, does need policing. That's right. We, you know, we, hey, uh, too many pedophiles. Um, but uh, his book, Community Conscious Policing, and pick it up, A Guide for People's Justice and Law Enforcement Solutions. Um, good brother, I really appreciate having you on Get On Code. Code Keepers, use this to empower you. Use this technology. This, this book is technology. It's a technology, right? Use this technology to go forth and make the changes that need to happen in our world, in our community, in our nation. Because we have a lot to work on, and that helps us, that strengthens us, that gives us the empowerment we need, the technology we need to make those moves. Good brother Brandon Lee, thank you for all you're doing and training for transformation. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, for anybody who was able, please leave us a positive book review. That'd be greatly appreciated. Much, much love and respect. Yeah, buy the book. Leave a positive book review. Peace. Peace and blessings. All right, brother.